Hello and welcome to Dodecahedron, the podcast by, for, and about role players. I'm Jess Vetters. And I'm Colin Lamothe. Every week we get together to talk about a range of gaming-related topics, from creating a character to running a game, and what it all means for people who share a favorite hobby. We may not be experts, but we do have pleasant voices and a wealth of gaming experience that we are eager to share with you. Our topic today is emotional investment. But before we get into it, Colin, it's been a bit since we've talked. How are you, my friend? I'm doing pretty well. I've been uh, a little <clears throat> under the weather, so to say. And by under the weather, I don't mean sick. I mean underneath an avalanche of responsibility. See, we're coming up on Gen Con, and uh, mm-hmm. I found that I am in charge of a LARP, live-action roleplay, that I... Uh, We'll need to be running for paying customers for about 17 hours throughout Gen Con. See, the way you put that makes it sound like this was suddenly thrust upon you and you learned of it almost by accident? Well, I knew that the LARP was coming up and I knew that I was involved, but I didn't know that I was in fact leading it and responsible for the whole thing until relatively recently. Oh, so how has your prep for that been going? Oh, stressful. There's a lot of characters to write up. <clears throat> Every single character in the LARP, which is over 30 characters, have to be written up, linked together, and have their own stories placed against the, um, you know, the main story that we have going on. So everything has to line up. Everything needs to be linked together because the idea behind the LARP is that most of the time... We as Storytales will be facilitating scenes, making sure that, you know, people throw chops and all of those are fair and this and that and this and that. But for the most part, all of the players will be interacting with each other and talking and talking and talking and planning. So we need to give them uh, characters with robust backgrounds, with a, a wealth of creative opportunity for them to be able to build upon, because that's a lot of time to be talking. My goodness. Yeah, that sounds pretty intense. It certainly is, and since I am, at this point in time, carrying about 90% of the staff work, it's especially intense. Oof. Yeah, I feel like if you've got 30 players that you're dealing with, you should probably have a couple more people helping you in the prep. Oh, I do. But, you know, what do I know? I do, but they don't help. (laughs) Oh! Excellent. That just sounds fantastic. Good help is hard to find these days. How about you, buddy? I've been pretty decent. I was uh, actually back home again in Indiana last weekend, and the entire time I was there, it was just like one family event to the next. So I ended up being incredibly busy doing sort of nothing, but also like helping look after my nieces and nephews and helping my brother work on his house and then helping set up for my mom's retirement party so it was like there was just so much yeah exactly i haven't had a lot of time Hmm. to myself since then all right i never got a chance to visit you which is unfortunate yeah but you know that's what happens when it's like oh i've got three or four free hours in this entire weekend can that work for you and (laughs) the answer is just sometimes no not really (laughs) Absolutely. But so it goes. So Uh, it goes. Now, in the midst of all of that, and like right before I went on this trip, literally the night before, I was 
doing a session with my Pathfinder game, uh, the one in which I am playing the badass Lady Paladin. Oh yes. And I wanna I wanna fill you in on what happened over the last two sessions of that game oh, because yes. it's really why I wanted to talk about this topic this week. So yeah, you've kept me in suspense. I I have done that very purposefully. Uh, at seventh level, we're at ninth now. I took a, a feat called leadership, which, if you're familiar with it or if you're not, is essentially say like because of this feat, you now have what they call a cohort, which is an NPC who becomes like player level two behind you and is just your buddy now. Mm -hmm. But you also have to like take care of them and keep them out of harm's way as much as possible. Oh yeah, right, right. So what I had ended up getting as my cohort, or who I had get up, ended up getting, I should say, was another paladin with an organization called the Knights of Awesome, because we're playing in the Galarian setting. And her name is Oslin, and she is a little bit timid and totally unsure of herself, but very competent. Wait. And I love her to death. Wait, 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 wait. Oslin from the Paladins of Awesome? Yes. Okay. Just making sure. Yep. No, you, you got that right. Okay. Well, I mean, at least it's alliterative. It is. And it makes them... I'm not sure if it makes it easier to remember each one or a little bit trickier, but it works. I mean... It does work. I mean, that's all you're looking for, really. Something that works. Yeah. So, I had met this character months and months ago before we started this dungeon that we've been diving through for... Well, we I think we started into it in February and got out of it two weeks ago. Wow. It was pretty intense. Uh, but as we're leaving, Oslin found this box. And it was, like, kind of what we had been going in for the entire time. It was, like, the MacGuffin treasure that we had to get in return to the Harlot Queen. Uh, Hell of a name. Oh, right? But she figured out that what was in this box was actually the Harlot Queen, who is a lich who runs a country. Uh, it was her heart. And if she got her heart back, she would have, one, more power, and two, one fewer weakness. And the Knights of Awesome don't like the Harlot Queen for a lot of backstory reasons that you can find on, like, various wikis and whatnot. So, but like, presumably Oslin, also because their paladins and liches are usually not good for paladins. Well, yes, generally speaking. Uh, so Oslin decides she's gonna just take this box and run off because she doesn't know what our party is going to do with it. Because we were contracted to bring it back to the Harlot Queen unopened. And then she fucking died. What? Like a god came out of the sky, stole the box, and ripped her literal heart out. That's just mean. Yeah. It's unnecessary. This... If there's a god that's coming down and like snatching out the box, like why why you gotta go that far? Why you gotta Kalima out somebody's heart? I don't know, man. It was it was just super mean. Oslin's a good girl. She didn't do anything wrong. She was just trying to, you know, do her duty. Which god was it? Uh, well, we think it was the reincarnated Eridan. All right. So, I, I yeah. you know, I, I realize I asked you what god it was. Um, 
However, I am not familiar with any of the gods, so I I knew somebody that somebody out there, somebody out there is really pleased that you asked that question because now they're going what? Yeah, I, I <laughs> okay, cause cause like I asked you that question knowing that you would give me an answer most likely, and it would be in the form of a fantasy name, but I would be no further to the answer of my actual question. So you'll have to explain this a little bit more. Okay, so in the setting, Aridin, like, disappeared. People assume that the god, he's like the human incarnation of divinity itself. Oh, wait, maybe I do Sort realize. of like if Jesus was a fantasy god. Uh, wait, I do know this. I do know this story, but continue to explain it anyways for anybody who has not listened to or played D&D. So I shall. Uh... So, Aridin's whole thing was like, hey, I'm the good guy, and humans are awesome, and we're going to win, because I literally just pulled an island out of the sea and hid this magical meteorite, or whatever it is, called the Starstone, Starstone in the middle of it, and built a temple, and thus the biggest city in the world around it. Oh, and also, if you go and actually go through the dungeon to get to the Starstone, you become a god, too. It's pretty neat. Uh... But, when Aridin disappeared, there was this whole big to-do about, like, what does this mean? No god has ever just vanished or died or whatever before. So it kind of put the whole world into a little bit of disarray, as one would expect. Just a tiny bit. Yeah. And so in our story, something that happened right before our party left on this big grand adventure is... Uh, what that's what that's called the bridge of Aridin was restored after being broken after uh, Aridin disappeared. I've said Aridin too many times now, and it doesn't feel like real sounds. Moving right along, uh, so that had just come back, and everybody was like, <laughs> "What does this mean? Does it mean anything? Is it just some magical trickster messing with us?" And now it seems that oh yeah, Aridin is back and likes to rip people's hearts out. Wait, he's done this before. Yeah, so the whole campaign kicked off, and this is before I had actually joined it, with another ancient relic being stolen and everyone in the party who had been carrying it, not the player characters, the player characters found this, like, caravan after the fact, uh, but all of their hearts had been ripped out as well. Something about this dude and hearts. I know, right? I mean... I feel like there's something thematic that I'm not quite getting. I mean, somebody might say this is a connection, but I choose to believe that it means nothing. And in fact, the rest of your player characters should not let it influence at all your investigation. I agree. <laughs> yeah, treat it totally circumstantial. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hearts are, you know, hearts are just, they're not, you know, for a god, maybe they just consider hearts to be too loud. It's possible. I mean, if I had big divine ears and I could hear everybody's prayers or whatever and all these clerics and paladins calling on me to sample my power all of the time, a heartbeat's probably like a drum. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Plus, there's the whole, like, humans need hearts to live thing. So if you take it out, it's a really easy way to make them not live anymore. Yeah, 100% correct. Uh, but where I was going with the with the relaying of this story is that after 
this was described to us, after we found Oslin's body, I, because of my character's connection with her and because of my emotional investment in the story and the characters, I literally just kind of sat on the couch and, like, sort of cried for about two minutes and was kind of useless for a solid chunk of the game after that. And our DM messaged me afterward essentially saying like I'm sorry I didn't know that was going to hit you that hard are you okay and my response was I'm fantastic that was amazing please yes do things like that more often I mean don't kill characters that I like more often yeah though you got to be real careful about how you how you tell the DM to continue doing things oh yeah but the best part is after that we had one more session before I went back to Indiana and we got back to Absalom, the biggest city in the world, where our sort of base of operations is. And we have revived Oslin at this point, because we're like ninth level, and we have tons and tons of money and can just bring people back from the dead. The stakes are pretty low unless the body is completely destroyed. All right, I forgot. Yeah. Uh, but then in that next session, the DM hits me with, oh, hey. Your character's youngest brother from the backstory that you haven't really revealed to the other characters that you gave me more than two years ago? Yeah, he's here, and he was a slave, and now he lives in your house. So I got two big whammies two weeks in a row. It was wonderful, and also my heart hurt. Yeah. Wow. That was, well, I mean, like, at least you got her back. We got her back, and I've got, you know somebody from my past back as well but it's also like hey here's a new story to deal with because your backstory actually matters and i think that's one of my favorite things about this campaign it's one of my favorite things about when i was playing with you back in college was like if i give my dm my character's backstory and i've got all of this stuff and it's like hey i've put a lot of thought into this character and that never comes up that sucks but if you just sprinkle little bits of that along the way, it's such a good hook. Like, it is a giant Moana-style fish hook right into my belly that's just going to be dragging me along. I'm real glad that you referenced that. That's good. That's good. Well, well played. I know very little about that movie, except Dwayne the Rock Johnson's character has a giant bone fish hook. Why haven't you just watched the movie? Uh, because people keep telling me to watch the movie, and I'm obstinate. That's, that's, that's weirdly, that's weirdly counter. I, I don't understand your logic. <laughs> There's not much logic there. There really is not. Ah, uh, it's okay. It's the same reason I haven't watched Yuri on Ice yet. Because everybody's like, oh, hey, it's really good. You should watch it. And then I go, okay, fine. So it's really good. I'll watch it eventually. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I understand that. I haven't seen The Godfather at all. Mm. Or well, I mean, some like, other classics. The Godfather is older than we are, so. Actually, no. It's also on the internet. It's less of an excuse. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I'd actually, I'd actually only very briefly heard about the Yuri on Ice thing, and then I just sort of stopped hearing about it, stopped caring, and here I am. Yeah. Which I think is now why I'm going to start watching it fairly soon, 
because people are not constantly telling me to watch it anymore. Oh, yeah. No, speaking of things that uh, people are telling you to watch, uh, Hero Academia. It's good. Oh, you've already watched it, so I can't I can't actually banish you from watching it by telling you about it. No. And that's another <clears throat> show that I get very uh, emotionally invested in to bring us back to our topic. And I think they do something really nicely with that, where it's like, Deku kind of sucks a little bit. Mm. Like, his character motivation is pretty simple. He doesn't have a lot of complexity to, like, the sorts of things that he does, but he cares so much, and he puts himself 110% into literally everything he does, Absolutely. which makes it makes the audience empathize and we want him to succeed even though there are other characters where it's like yeah your motivation to do the things that you're doing is a lot stronger what's uh what's good for me is that they allow him to lose a lot oh yeah uh i do find that the that sometimes the story moves a little slow for my liking but that's it that's that's the only thing well i mean like the entire second half of the second season or whatever it was was just hey it's the sports festival you you haka show esque tournaments of that exactly <laughs> well i mean you wouldn't really be able to go very far in an anime about superheroes without some sort of a tournament happening it's just such a cheap <clears throat> way to show off big flashy fights like hey now we're going to have these magical students just uh, uh, tournament arc well yeah <clears throat> i mean like cuz like otherwise You've got everybody that's theoretically on the same team. You're like, how do we get them to use all of their powers? How do we give everyone the spotlight? Well, we have to pit them against each other in some way. Yes. Uh, but we have to do so without actually making <clears throat> anyone a villain. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. But circling back around to our yeah, yeah. emotional investment... How would you like to begin? Would you like to begin by tackling your emotions around Oslin and from the player's side? How do you become emotionally invested? What do you need in a story? What what can a DM give you to get you to be a part of it? Or do we want to tackle the DM side? What do you, as a DM, need to create for your players? Because I feel like the answers, while in similar veins would be different they absolutely are uh and i think this will go probably best if i talk about it from a player's <clears throat> perspective mostly and you talk about it from a dm's perspective that would be really wise considering my lack of experience doing playing anytime in the last five years yeah that's what i figured yeah, you figured correctly so i know for me as a player and this goes for things far beyond just this one topic, but it also is the crux of it. I need time to get to know not just the characters that I'm running around with. Like, having player-to-player -player conversations is incredibly important, but player-to-NPC conversations and being able to explore and really flesh out the setting are essential. Because if I don't and you know what? There's actually a fairly decent example of this. I was playing in a mm -hmm. campaign for a while uh, where 
partly because of the character that I had chosen to play and partly mm. because of my lack of understanding of the setting, I never really got invested into that Aww. game. I get you. Un yeah, until I like literally changed characters. Uh, so what I really just need is trying to figure out how to put this succinctly so I can stop talking and let you actually say some words. Yeah, do whatever, uh, man. I think what I really need as a player is just being able to explore. I need to be able to roleplay while I roleplay, you know? Oh, of course, right, of course. No, I get it. Need a gun on your gun so you can shoot while you shoot. Exactly. I need a gun that shoots guns that shoot bullets that are made of guns. Exactly. Well, I mean, of course. <clears throat> How else can you be sure? <laughs> you can't. You just can't. <laughs> but no, I mean, like, when it comes down to it, the biggest way to let me as a player, and a lot of this comes from my acting and writing background, yeah, sure. is just let me play my character to the fullest extent. Jump into the hilt. Exactly. Like, if I'm doing combat monster stuff, I'm never really going to get too invested in the story. And if the story matters to you, and the entire game is just, hey, you're an adventurer, fight stuff. I don't care. That's not what I'm here for. Counterpoint in Devil's, uh, Devil's Advocate, is it possible to run a primarily combat-focused campaign and still elicit emotional investment? To you, Jess. I think... If the stakes were at the right place, then it could be. If I really care about what I'm fighting for, then yes. But there has to be something to establish that care. Fair. And I'm not really entirely sure how that would work from a, like, probably like a, goodness, can't talk, uh, from like a hypothetical standpoint. Uh, you can use family or loved ones or something like that as kind of a crutch but that's not really that's not asking me to be emotionally invested in the story that's asking me to save the princess it's not going to elicit the same reaction fair okay i understand i i get where you're coming from so my question to you would be are there any tried and true methods that you know to help get your players invested in the characters, in the story, in the setting, and all of that? I'm going to give you the short answer and the long answer. The short answer is no. No, there is no tried and true way. I'm sorry, there is no secret sauce. There isn't one specific action you can do, specific plot you can run, uh, a thing that will work on every person every time. What a DM has to understand and what we have to understand as people who engage in these collaborative narrative exercises, these role-playing games, is that the people that are coming to the table are different people. They may share similar interests, but they've led different lives, they've had different experiences, and uh, by virtue of that, they have different investments. <clears throat> and then their characters will have different investments because it is through us, the conduit, uh, the conduit of the player, that the character is given life. And, of course, by the player being the conduit, it just happens to mean that a lot of the player ends up in the character one way or another. So, uh, I know that's not 
the most gratifying answer for people that are looking for a way to bring their players in. And, and I, I do have something here. To those DMs that are struggling with getting characters invested, I would say to them, don't focus on trying to get your players invested as a group. It's hard. It's difficult. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it can, and if you can pull it off, that's fantastic. But focus on your individual players. Focus on what you know of them. Focus on what they've played before. Focus on what they've said they've wanted to play. It's a, a psychological kind of truism that to know your player is to be able to get into the minds of their of their character. <clears throat> so if you can focus on the person that is sitting across from you at the gaming table, you can find a way to, what would get them invested is what would get their character invested. So to use an example, I'll just use my group because I, I just happen to yeah. play with those guys a bunch. <clears throat> so I, I know how how their minds work. So, so Kitty, for instance, um, she is very invested in the idea of, of NPCs and, and protecting, um, uh, personalities that she becomes attached to. So you create, so for me, I, I would, I would go out of my way to make sure that I would create a string of possible NPC seeds and uh, the seeds being uh, an NPC with a with like a basic story and a lot of kind of off the wall personality variants, and then I find which one she connects to, and then I heavily involve myself in the story of that NPC because as I build that NPC, she'll build her story closer around it, and she'll become deeply invested in the NPC. And then you can of course bring in other people that are similar to that NPC or or completely different other ways to get her invested. But that's the way that she gets invested. Um, <clears throat> whereas another one of my players, Ryan, I've mentioned him before, uh, Ryan is, invents, uh, is, in, um, is invested in information. Um, he likes an idea of a mystery, of, of, of a constantly evolving sense of conquest around mystery or, um, or, or knowledge. And, and, and so if you, if you build in those aspects, you can get him emotionally invested. Uh, I actually managed to get him severely emotionally invested in a PC or in an NPC. What's interesting is that the NPCs are the greatest tools that a DM has. I once went well, to... They're, they're people. Right. They're, and the thing is, is that your players, their characters, they... It's hard for them to care about an abstraction. The world is going to end. Okay. All right. All of us who have lived through 2012 know a thing or two about people saying the world is going to end. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's hard to get them invested in the concept of all of creation coming to an end. Because as human beings, we kind of build what we care about based on the connections that we make with our environment and the people that we run into. So NPCs, I went to a seminar at Gen Con and, and, uh, and a certain per and the, I don't remember a lot of it, but the one thing that did stick out to me is, uh, this person saying I've, I've GM'd for, you know, 35 plus years. And this is, and this is what I think is a truism about, about like D and D about quests, about role-playing in general is you're never going to make the PCs care about your plot, but 
you can make the PCs care about the NPCs because the NPCs are people. And if your characters care about the NPCs, then they care about their plot. There's an emotional tie-in. There's an investment. You make these people real. And from that that reality, exactly, from that reality comes connection. Uh, If you had just a random guide with you, an NPC your characters had never gotten to really know, and uh, he got his heart torn out and someone made off with the box, you guys would be like, oh, that's horrible. But you wouldn't really be messed up about it. You'd be like, that's real dark. And now we can't bring this heart to the Harlot Queen, who is probably going to use it badly anyways. Uh, uh, crap. But because it was someone connected to you, Jess, to your character, you were emotionally sideswiped by it completely thrown off balance pivot your story on npcs that the characters care about and the trick then is to make your characters care about the npcs and that that we can kind of get into into another podcast that's a whole or that's another episode because that's a that's a whole other can of worms to open up oh yeah that's a topic on its own uh, now, what I want to ask you is a piece of DM to DM advice. All right. Uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, I am going to start running a game for a party larger than I've ever actually run for before, where half of the players have never played before. Ooh. And I don't personally know a few of them very well. Mm-hmm. So... I know how to build the setting up. I know how to start the story. I know how to deal with, like, bringing the characters together. What I'm worried about is making them care enough so that the game goes more than, like, three or four sessions. So what I would ask you is, do you have any tips and tricks for a GM starting into a game to make the players come back? Well, let's see. Excuse me. I have two possibilities that I will that I'll that I'll run by you here. Two things that I have tried, um, and both of which I have met with with success. The very first is that you can is that your first session of the game is not actually focused around the events of the game. Instead, you choose it to be a collaborative, character-building session. <clears throat> you have your players get their idea for what they want their characters to uh, what they want their characters to be. Depending on exactly how much secrecy is involved in in your game, obviously this may or may not be be doable. But <clears throat> one by one you say, "All right, and now we are talking about uh like James Birch, the investigator." Here are the things that player Y, let's just call him Steve. This is what Steve has said about about Birch, his character. Now, what we want to add in is an NPC person, like a person of note, importance. We want to have a pivotal event in his life. And I would like you, the other players, to help us come up with a reason, with more backstory. Everyone can feel involved in the creative process. And... In addition, it gives you a chance to see how other players think. 
what they would consider to be uh, an emotionally scathing moment, what they would consider to be a um, an NPC of worth. Okay, I like that. Bring um, everybody in on the ground floor. Exactly. You bring them in on the ground floor, but only on the player characters. So what they're actually developing is the meta, which is the prologue to your main event. And and not only are they learning about each other and kind of getting involved in each other's stories, but also they're giving you so many different kernels of ideas to put into your story. And then when I bring those in later, I seem like a really cool, really smart GM. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> a lot of GMing is knowing how to take credit for some of the random things that happen in games that actually make you look really smart. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, of course I planned for that vague prophecy to have come out now uh, 12 sessions later in this specific way. It was my grand plan all along. <laughs> While secretly you're like, oh man, I didn't even notice that that was the case. Oh, yeah. What? I totally forgot that I put that into the game. I mean, of <laughs> course. Clearly, you, 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 uh, clearly I know you better than you know yourself. Yes. And then you get the players saying, wait a second, is this the same horse from the small town that we saved after the bank robbery? Yes, it has tracked you down because of the like, life why, debt yes, it that is. it owes you. And, and, and how could this horse have done such a thing? Well, it, it must be magical for some reason, connected to another plot that I'm coming up with at this point in time. Yes! So intelligent of you to have picked that out. My plan is only partially foiled. I love it. And then suggestion two. Yes, please. <clears throat> suggestion two is what I call is is what I call the um, the cliffhanger and the deleted scene stinger. <clears throat> now, this requires a narrative end. It requires your outro, where you're like, all right, we're at the end of the night. You kind of sum up what was going on in the next scene, and then you kind of lead out. Sometimes you can even suggest, like, if we're looking at a camera, this is when the camera pans out of the small shack where you're all sitting around the board that spells out the name of your of your ancestor who had passed years before. And and as we pan out and the storm falls, all and then you just you you basically kind of like give them the thoughts that they're thinking. You give them the atmospheric end to the episode, end to the episode, like you know to to the action yeah. itself. Give them the outro of narration, which lets them know that not only is it over, but like it allows them to kind of swim along the journey. And all they have to worry about is visualizing what you are telling them. Well, and I can structure it like a TV show then. Yes, and that's why, and that's what comes in next. The next thing that comes in is the uh, is what I call the deleted scene stinger. The deleted scene stinger is the uh, is kind of like the uh, the what they do in the Marvel, where midway through the credits they have another scene, or sometimes in TV shows over the music they they switch to another they switch to another scene, and like 
it's not a scene that requires very much dialogue. You're just describing the scene, but it's a scene that doesn't take place at all in the scope of the character's vision, but it gives the players a chance to see what's happening in the world around them. It's a chance to focus on, like, the villain or a scene of a crime that they're about to discover in the very next episode. You give them pieces of information, dramatic context, visualization of what is to come in a way that their players would never have been able to experience or their characters wouldn't have been able to experience as a nod to the players of like, uh-huh, this is what's happening right now. You can't do anything about it, but these are the teasers for next time. And they'll be like, oh my God, the guy with the hook, he's right outside. You'll be like, and what's that going to mean for next session? And now we're done. Ah, uh, Yes. All right, I'm going to have to work on coming up with uh, some good structures to let that happen. Mm-hmm. Most of the the uh, the outro, like the outro and the deleted scene stinger, uh, I developed for a game that I am running that is uh, that is formatted like a television show, my my superhero game, where after every single session, I write up like the Netflix episode description and send that out to the rest of the players of the episode that we just played through. Uh, I, I structure in I structure in a, a mid-season finale, uh, which gives me about the idea of how many episodes are going to be in that season. And after the mid-season finale, we do a kind of a jokey session. We kind of do a, a jokey session the next time where I have a cast interview where they play the cast of their characters answering questions on a TV show a la The CW or whatever like that before we move into the next part of the season. Interesting. Yeah. I really like the sound of that. It you are welcome. Multiple reasons. You're welcome to steal it, buddy. You can take it. There I've got no copyright. Uh, I think I probably will. Because I feel like that would be a really good way to keep players especially players who have never actually like seriously roleplayed before interested in what was coming up next. Absolutely. Because I feel like you know, I, I play with a lot of theater kids mm -hmm. as i like to call us uh and i feel like it's really easy to get actor types interested in playing for the sake of playing mm -hmm. but not always for the sake of the story yes so i feel like as long as i'm if i'm treating my players like actors mm-hmm and giving them that hook into what they're actually doing, I think that'll help. It's worth a try. Like, I, like I've kind of discovered as I've moved down through gaming year after year is that you just got to be experimental about things. Like, you just got to be a little bit... You, gotta, you just got to be a little bit crazy about how you approach a new narrative structure or how you're going to uh, present a new story or idea. And, and the players will love you for it. And sometimes it flops and sometimes it's really awesome. And sometimes part of it is awesome and part of it flops. And you just take the part that's awesome and add it to another thing and keep moving. Makes sense to me. Yeah. That's so emotional investment, it is different for everyone. Uh, every single person has a different thing that they would that would get them emotionally invested into the game, and although as a friend you don't want to you don't want any of your friends to cry or be sad, if you can get them to cry in character and be sad in character about a fictional situation 
with fictional people that do not exist, then you have created something real enough that you have given them actual pathos. And that is something to strive for. Yeah, I think the most amazing part about it is, especially with role-playing, it's not like you're dealing with any sort of visual or mm -hmm. even textual narrative medium. Right, right. Like, you are literally just talking to people, rolling dice, and maybe looking at something like miniatures on a table. Yeah, exactly. And to be able to evoke that sort of raw, real emotion is, I think, one of the biggest testaments to to how powerful narrative storytelling right. or collaborative storytelling can be. I'm with you. I think we've set a good piece on this topic, man. I, I do, too. You know, I feel very strongly that we have uh, said everything that there really is to say, at least from our own experiences based on it. Uh, I think saying any more would be uh, belaboring, bel bel belaboring the point. Beating the dead horse, as it were. Ooh, don't want that. Too many necromancers. I'm actually about to play a necromancer in a full day session on Wednesday. Oh, it's my first necromancer ever. Man, I love necromancers. Never I'm get a chance to play to it. them. They just, they're just, they're just super fun. Try to do something weird with it. Try to do something really unique and strange. Well, it started out because I did that little, like, who's my fucking character generator online, <laughs> which is incredible. And uh, if you'll give me just a moment, I'll edit this part out in the actual final product, because I actually want to pull up the message. Uh, not the message, the thing that it gave me. Yeah. I'm going to roll the stats for a fucking short-tempered dragonborn wizard from the boneyard who hasn't been quite right since the accident. <laughs> so, like, that's my character concept, and I am super stoked about it. That's... That <laughs> that's super fun. Oh, yeah. I like it. Good... Good, good on you. Let me know about the adventures of this necromancer. I, I am interested. I certainly shall. And, uh, probably next Sunday I'll come back on and tell everybody how it went. Perfect. I think we'll all be happy to hear that. Alrighty. In the meantime, I think we've just about finished up here. Uh, you wanna, for old time's sake, outro ourselves out? Let's do it, Colin. Excellent. I'll let you begin, good buddy. From all of us here at Dodecahedron, I've been Jess. And I have been Colin. And we'll see you next time, my lovelies. I don't know, roll some good dice or something. Or bad ones. That's, that's even more interesting. <laughs> right. I'll talk to you later, Colin. See you, Jess. Bye.